Hello, and welcome to the History of the Copts, episode 56, The Apocalypse. So last time, we stopped was the start of the 8th century, was Abdullah, the son of the Caliph Abdul Malik, coming to rule Egypt. As mentioned last week, Alexander, the new patriarch, started his reign by being imprisoned and ransomed for money. And Abdullah, sent to Egypt with the explicit goals to raise revenue, in addition to his dealings with the Pope, implemented a 67% tax hike right out of the gate. And the financial hit went beyond a simple tax hike, as a census took place that made many of those who previously gotten away was not being anything, now subject to taxation. As we move into the narrative, you will notice how things will more or less revolve around money. Basically, Egypt was seen as a rich province that can provide a stable yearly revenue. True in a sense, but there was a couple of fundamental problems with that approach. One, as more Arabs settled into Egypt, the cost needed to pay them their expected salary for their nominal military service went up. And two, more Egyptians were becoming Arabs through converting to Islam. Day two, after a generation or two, were exempted from taxes and expected a salary. Lastly, the Arab unit for taxation was individuals, not the land. So logistically, for the tax collection, a chronic problem of tax flight developed, where if village inhabitants would be counted and assist, then naturally some wouldn't afford their share, so they leave their village and lands and immigrate to a new town, where they would not be subject to those taxes as they were not counted in the census of that new village. And in the same way, some of the inhabitants of that new village would also leave and end up somewhere else where they weren't part of the census. So eventually, you end up with a large portion of the population being not present and not paying taxes. To deal with this problem, the Arab administration under Abdullah came up with uh, several creative solutions. The first was to brand those refugees and send them back to their home villages. With the physical brand on their body, if they ran away again, they would quickly be recognized. The second was to regulate the burial of the dead. Essentially, no matter where you are, when you died, someone had to get a permit to bury you. And at this point, if you owed any taxes, then those taxes had to be paid first before you get buried. A brutal method of enforcement that hit the Egyptians where it hurts. Burial of the dead. To make matters worse, a severe famine hit Egypt at this point, and the Nile did not flood as expected. This made Abdullah a detested figure, and tensions within the province ran high. Not only was the Copts, but also was the Arabs settled. 
Abdullah dismissed many of the influential figures under Abdul Aziz and transferred the powerful Sahib al-Shurta to distant Alexandria. So his time as the Emir ended up being a short four years, especially as his father Abdul Malik died in late 705 and his brother Al-Walid took over the office. Al-Walid had a tough job of balancing various powerful factions through the Caliphate. His own brothers, including Abdullah in Egypt, were at times his worst enemies. Not to mention the Qiyasis and the Yemenis blood feud kept things tense in Syria and Palestine. Basically, to keep our narrative reasonable, he had a brother in Palestine who made an alliance with the Yemenis and was quite powerful. There was also another son of Abdul Aziz, who was the governor of Arabia and also had his own ambitions. Finally, the weakest link in Al-Walid rivals was Abdullah in Egypt, who was sloppy in his administration and hated by the locals. So naturally, as soon as Al-Walid had some breathing room, he removed Abdullah from his position and replaced him by one Kura ibn Sharik. And that removal was public and humiliating, delighting the cops in the process. Quote, that infidel Abdullah did not know of this change. And while he was sitting in his official residence, the governor appointed to replace him arrived unexpectedly and took his seat in his place. Thus, great shame came to him because of this account. The celebration did not last long, so. Kura, at his arrival, demanded that Alexander pay him another tribute to confirm his position. Abdullah had set a precedent and was successful at extracting money. So naturally, Kora followed the same steps. The Pope was imprisoned, then released to collect 3,000 dinars from the Christians as donations. And even then, either because the tour was unsuccessful or because Kora wanted to extract even more money, Alexander ended up imprisoned again for two years and tortured while he was in prison. Kura was a practical man, so. It seems that the trials of Alexander was more or less isolated and enabled by other powerful Christians. For example, the history of the patriarchs mention a certain Theodore, the financial officer responsible for Alexandria, who undermined the Pope and encouraged Kura to treat him roughly. At some point, the Pope was faced by an internal rebellion by the clergy of Alexandria, who, quote, reviled him with many hard words, while he patiently endured their abuse. This breakdown was likely due to the dire financial situation of the church, and the inability of the Pope to pay the clergy what they expected. Money all over the caliphate was becoming a problem. As I alluded to before, the Arabs formed what amounted to be a soldier aristocracy, but without lands. The Arabs in Egypt, at least those suitable for military service, expected to be exempt from taxation and receive a salary. 
By the day, this population was growing, and more Arabs were emigrating and Egyptians converting and becoming Arabs. This meant a shrinking tax base and an ever-growing people it supported. It was manageable during the times of territorial expansion, but under Al-Walid, Spain was conquered, and that expansion slowed down. So this meant we're about to embark about a vicious cycle of increased taxation. Also, Kura was an efficient administrator, and he used the talents of the locals successfully. He appointed a local Christian named John for collecting the taxes from the bishops and the monks. John made an interesting case to the governor. Quote, There are among them some who do not believe in the face of the Coptic Christians, and yet will not pray with the Muslims, i.e. the Milkite Church and the various offshoots of the Miaphysites. They, John made the case, should be taxed higher, and thus Kura can both increase the revenue and win the favor of many local Christians. The governor agreed, and John went an a tax-raising campaign, which essentially killed off the Julianist and all the one-bishop churches in Egypt that were not part of the official Coptic hierarchy. John, quote, united the whole land of Egypt in one face with true agreement, and brought all the foul heresies to note. And he didn't do it by some clever theological formula. No, just with the stick of the emir of Mosr and the carrot of decreased taxation. Now, to be accurate, there is a level of embellishment in that quote. As the Milkite church survived Kuras and John's policy and ended up doing okay for a few hundred years. But still, if you are wondering how come the Julianists are not a saint today, well, we can thank John for that. To illustrate, consider the curious case of the Milkite patriarch at that time. Perhaps as a result between the hostility between Pope Alexander and Theodore, the financial official mentioned earlier, a prominent physician in Alexandria petitioned the caliph to become the Milkite patriarch of the city with the support of Theodore and a financial contribution to the treasury of the caliphate. The caliph agreed, and after a long 50-year absence, the Milkite church got a patriarch in Alexandria. Very quickly so, the physician-turned-patriarch found that the job was way too difficult and basically gave up on it and went to Alexander and converted to the Coptic Church as a way to leave his job permanently. So clearly, the Milkite Church was struggling, but it was still alive. Another creative way that Kura raised the revenue was by confiscating the property of rich aristocrats once they died, in a sort of a super high one-time inheritance tax. This included the endowment that the bishops owned, which, as expected, greatly stressed the church finances. Despite all these measures, the finances were still strained, and tax flight 
continued to be a problem, and escalating measures were taken to restrict the movement of the farmers. By 715 AD, the Justinianic plague made another round in Egypt, decimating the population and killing off Kura and his family. Al-Walid, the caliph in Syria, also died in the same year, after 10 years of essentially continuing his father's policy of territorial expansion, asserting Islam's position, and maintaining the balance between the Qiyasis and the Yemeni's faction. Following the caliph was his brother Sulaiman, the governor of Palestine, who had made an alliance with the Yemenis. Sulaiman was a lot more interested in women and luxury than actual governing. So for us in Egypt, Sahib Shorta, an insider, was promoted to be the governor and Sulaiman left him alone, so long as the money kept flowing. And making sure that the money kept flowing was a certain Usama, the financial officer under the emir. Also, in that time period, they functioned more like colleagues with independent spheres of influence. Usama, in an effort to try and stop tax flight into the monasteries, took a census of the monks and branded them on their left hand with their name, the name of the monastery, and the date according to the Islamic calendar. The following year, he made another tour to the same monasteries to see if any of the farmers had escaped their villages and became monks. All those who did not have the brand were, quote, brought to the emir who ordered that the limbs should be cut off so that they were lame for life and the number could not be counted of those who were maimed for that cause. Lastly, in a more reasonable policy that ended up sticking, Osama started issuing passports, where, if you were caught traveling without one, your property would be confiscated and you would be arrested. This, in the beginning, essentially killed off the local trade, as the issuing of passports were mired with logistical problems, and the cost of replacement, five dinars, was out of the reach for most. At any rate, the fundamental problem remained, which was a shrinking tax base and increased expenses. All these creative measures were essentially counterproductive, and every year the revenue collected dwindled. In Syria, the partying finally caught up to the caliph, and he died within two years of his elevation, in 717. When he died, the most obvious successor was his brother Yazid, but he was at the walls of Constantinople. So, through Yemeni Qiyasi intrigue, a cousin of his, Omar, was declared caliph. Omar, out of all the Umayyad caliphs, took a great interest in the Islamization of his empire, not as a way to assert Arab rule or put down rivals, you know, a powerful king using religion to control the masses kind of a thing. No, he truly had a vision of making all of his subjects Muslims, mostly out of his own personal piety. So, while the bull tax before was more of a tribute from the population to the rulers, 
he made it a religious tax that only applies to non-Muslims, which in time became known as the Jizya. So all of the sudden, under Omar, a non-Arab Persian or a cop can convert and immediately be exempt from taxation. Also, if he owned lands, he would have to give them up and become part of the army. Differences between Arab Muslims and non-Arab converts were also removed. Lastly, he put a stop to the wars and focused on the internal affairs of the caliphate. These measures, where they made sense on paper, ultimately exacerbated the financial problems, especially as many converted to Islam in an effort to avoid the bull tax. In Egypt, Omar upon elevation arrested Usama and reversed all of his counterproductive extreme measures. Out of piety, he respected the traditions of the early Muslims and exempted the monasteries and the churches from taxation, which relieved some of the pressure on the church. But for the average Joe, the bull tax obligation just became a lot more tight to make up for the lost revenue. The reforms of Omar ended up sharply decreasing the revenue of Egypt, and its emir had to borrow 20,000 dinars just to meet the obligation of paying the Arabs in the province, let alone forward any surplus to Syria. The reforms also initiated a wave of conversion, which we have an interesting Babarai surviving, enlisting the prior name of the convert, his new Muslim name, as well as his sponsoring Arab chief. To cope with the decreasing revenue, slowly, the idea of taxing the land using a variable tax rate began to take hold. Also, there weren't enough Muslims to do that kind of job. So Omar issued an edict that all the village headsmen in Egypt have to be Muslims, as they ultimately did most of the heavy lifting and collecting the information needed to tax the land. Lastly, before he died, he issued his most extreme edict that basically told his subjects to either convert to Islam or get out of the caliphate. Quote, Those who wish to remain as they are and in their own country must follow the religion of Muhammad as I do. But let those who do not wish to do so Go forth from my dominions. His Islamization efforts died quickly with Himsa. And overall, the shift of policy was insignificant, as he only lasted a short three years as caliph. Following him was the brother of Al-Walid, who was away in Constantinople when Sulaiman died, Yazid, the son of Abdul Malik, the son of Marwan. Yazid was more interested in the practical issue of money than Islamization, so he pretty much cancelled most of Omar's policies, the ones that decreased the revenue anyway. The new efforts taxing the land stayed in place, but Yazid basically demanded a certain sum from his governor in Egypt, and that governor had to figure out a way and how to do it. Now, on a religious front, this is the time where the whole iconoclastic movement started to take place, and surprisingly, 
it all started in a caliphate by Yazid rather than in Constantinople. The caliph decreed that there would be no visible crosses or icons allowed in his dominion. This, arguably, cascaded into a big movement in Byzantium for those who are for and those who are against icons. But in Egypt, icons were treasured even more as a result of Yazid's edicts and became a symbol of the Copts unique identity. So the question of whether icons were appropriate or not never became a serious discussion in the Coptic church. But either way, like his predecessors, Yazid did not last long and died within a couple of years, handing the reign over to the last of Abdul Malik's sons, Hisham. Now, Hisham's reign would be long, and will witness the first of a long list of Coptic revolts. So before jumping into it, I would like to briefly explore how did the Copts deal with this escalating cycle of oppression. After all, it took about 50 years of misery, really, since Maslama have died in 682, to the first local rebellion in 725. The mood prevailing in the time, the official line explaining what was happening, so to speak, was that that it was the end of the world. Wars? Check. Famine? Check. Blake? Check. The Antichrist? Well, Abdel Malik building of the Dome of the Rock was a strong candidate, but Omar was actually named as the Antichrist in the history of the patriarchs. Quite telling, as this text is as close as you can get to the official history of the Coptic Church. In this period, a new kind of writing cropped up. Apocalyptic texts. Basically, the homemade versions of the biblical revelation. One text written around 715 in the reign of Yazid, named the Apocalypse of Athanasius, is a prime example of this phenomena. The text is made to sound like it was written by the famous Athanasius, as a prophecy of the coming of the Arabs and the end of times. But obviously, it was written during the events as a way to explain what was happening. A lot can be revealed in those apocalyptic texts. For example, in the Apocalypse of Athanasius, the clergy is rebuked for their unchristian behavior, and the writer laments the widespread ignorance of basic Christian beliefs. Another apocalyptic text written later on denounces the use of Arabic and the lack of regular attendance of the churches. Basically, the 8th century saw the complete breakdown of the old world order and the violent reshaping of a new Egyptian society. And for many, this only made sense in the context where the world was ending. So, when things improved a little bit, and it looked like the world is not ending after all, that's when the revolts kicked in. Which meant, Hisham, a much better caliph than his predecessors, would be the one dealing with these uprisings and the sponsor behind much of the violence. Now, to be 100% accurate, 
there was an obsequial revolt in Upper Egypt in 712, in the reign of Kura ibn Sharik. But we basically don't know anything about it, and it may have been a very local and insignificant event. The first real one, that I'm counting anyway, was in the first year of the reign of Hisham. Hisham was quite aware of the necessity of coming up with an efficient land-based taxation system to deal with the chronic money problems. Since the days of Omar, slow progress have been made on that front, and more local Muslims, converts, and second-generation Arabs were becoming involved in tax collection. So naturally, it was Hisham that took the project to its conclusion. First, the Caliph issued an edict the tax receipts must be issued to curb abuses by local powerful men. Two, he appointed a vigorous official, Obeid, to be in charge of realizing his vision of an organized, systemic, and a comprehensive land-based taxation in Egypt. In addition, of course, to the normal bull tax, which was slowly becoming part of the sacred Sharia, as the Jizya. So the first thing Obeid did when he entered Egypt was to take a very detailed survey of the lands, animals, and people. Quote, he commanded that the people and the cattle should be numbered, and the lands and vineyards measured with the measuring lines. And accordingly, this was done. Also, that the lid badge should be placed on the neck of every man, from the use of 20 to those who were 100 years old. And he had them numbered, and he wrote down the names of all of them, and the number of their beasts, young and old, and an account of the bad lands, difficult of cultivation, which produces coarse grass and thorns. And he set up milestones in the midst of the enclosed lands, at the boundaries and on the roads throughout the land of Egypt. And he doubled the taxes. He also, as his predecessor did, issued passports and branded folks to restrict their ability to evade taxes. This last round of air quotes reforms was the straw that finally broke the camel's back, especially that it was accompanied by another round of forced labor to build a governor a new palace. A bloody revolt broke out, and as our sources put it, in consequence of these things, when the forced labors and the payment of the taxes which he had doubled became grievous, war broke out between the Christians and Muslims. A revolt that we will jump into fully next week the first of a long series of tax revolts during the 8th century that transformed Egypt. When the dust finally settled, a hundred years later, in 831, 19 different revolts would have taken place. The Umayyad Caliphate would be long gone, and Egypt would cease to be a Christian land ruled by a Muslim elite. Rather, it would be a Muslim land ruled by one foreign group after another, a land that is decidedly Islamic, that happened to have some Christians. 
Thank you for listening. Farewell. And until next week.